So last week, I was in Chicago. This is really... Britta, how do I turn this off? Okay. Do I sound as loud out there as I do up? Can you turn me down or I'll <laughs> lower this way down here? All right. Um, so last week I was in Chicago, and so I appreciate those who were here and helped hold the fort down, um, especially to Mel, who I heard did a great job in his sermon last week. Um, so I was in Chicago because, as most of you know, I was accepted into a doctoral program before I started here, uh, but I wasn't necessarily expecting to make the transition to Bethamuna. It was kind of something God opened the doors to, and, and it happened. And, but during that transition, I had to kind of put everything on hold. But I've decided now that I've been here for a little over a, a year and a half now already that um, I really wanted to focus back on my on my studies, and so this last week I was in Chicago for, um, for a, a doctoral seminar, and it was awesome to not only get back into uh, working on some of the academic stuff that I'm interested in, but the course that I took was specifically on the portrayals of Messiah and Jewish tradition. And so I was in there from Jewish with Jewish professionals from across various uh, different organizations. And um, one of my fellow doctoral students is a reform rabbi who I had some really fantastic conversations that one of these times um, I'll have to share more with you. But anyway, so if anybody was wondering why I was not here, that's what I was doing. So this morning, I want to continue discussing Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount. A couple of weeks ago, we began unpacking the Sermon on the Mount, looking at it from its first century Jewish context. We discussed how Yeshua's three-chapter-long sermon, you think my sermons are long? <laughs> a three-chapter-long sermon is really a halachic discourse, using, and when I say halacha, I mean kind of a Jewish legal framework, right? Um, that using halachic formulas and ideas that were common within the Second Temple period. If you weren't here for that sermon, I encourage you to go back because I gave examples of specific formulas that Yeshua uses that we find in places like the Dead Sea Scrolls. We also discussed how Yeshua, as one man Israel, is an embodiment of the Jewish people and that his life parallels Israel's experience. Therefore, within this larger theme, the Sermon on the Mount serves as a re-giving of the Torah, where Yeshua is uh, serving in the role uh, uh, that Jewish tradition ascribes to the Messiah, he's serving as the halachic decisor. He is this lawgiver, just like the story with Moses and God. Except rather than being God in heaven, it is Yeshua who is now giving the proper understanding for how we're supposed to live out the words of the Torah. We also briefly discussed the Jewish context of the Beatitudes. Today, we are going to continue delving deeper into the Sermon on the Mount with the first half of Matthew chapter 6, where Yeshua begins teaching on the topic of giving tzedakah, of giving, uh, you know, good, goodwill towards others. In Matthew 6, verse 1, he says, Be careful not to pray your acts of tzedakah, of righteous giving, in front of people in order to be seen by them. If you do, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. 
So when you do tzedakah, don't announce it with trumpets to win people's praise, like the hypocrites in the synagogues and out on the streets. Yes, I tell you, they have their reward already. But you, when you do tzedakah, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Then your tzedakah will be in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. As is a common theme within Yeshua's teachings, he instructs us as his followers not to parade our piety for all to see. It doesn't matter what other people think, right? It's between you and God. It's not that we're not supposed to have fruit that bears out our witness, but if what you are doing, the motivation is to be seen by others, that's not fruit. <laughs> that is why Yeshua simply encourages us, by and large, to make our giving more of a private matter. The Rambam, Maimonides, who was a, a Jewish sage in the Middle Ages, taught that there are several different forms of giving tzedakah. And according to the Rambam, the highest form of tzedakah is when it is done completely in secret, meaning that when the giver does not know who the money is going to go to and the receiver has no idea who it's from. When there is this like private on both ends, according to the Rambam, that's the highest level of tzedakah. Because there's no you know, kind of maneuverability on the person who's giving it, and the person who's receiving it, there's no shame in the sense of who they're receiving it from. So he says that's the highest level of tzedakah. Not that there's not other wonderful ways in order to, to give, but he says that's the highest when there is no reward at all. <laughs> Yeshua then transitions from discussing, the, uh, discussing giving tzedakah to discussing prayer. And this is where I want to focus most of our attention on for the next couple of minutes. In Matthew 6, verse 5, we read, when, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray standing in the synagogues and out on the street corners so that people can see them. Yes, I tell you, they have their reward already, right? Because their reward is people seeing them. But you, when you pray, go into your room, Close the door and pray to your father in secret. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is that prayer closet that often, you know, people talk about. That what we do is we go in to a place, and it doesn't have to be a room. It can be like Rabbi Nachman of Breslov taught his chassidim, go out into the wilderness or, go, or into the woods, whatever it is, in whatever place that you connect with God, go to that place. And just pour out your heart to God. And he continues, and, don't, and when you pray, don't babble on and on like the pagans who think God will hear them better if they talk a lot. Don't be like them because your father, who knows, your father knows what you need before you even ask him. And then we see here a similar message of how Matthew even ends this particular chapter. He says, Right there in verse 8, that your father already knows what you need even before you ask him. And in the reading today, which was the last half of this chapter, we read, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food, your body more than clothing? So don't be anxious, for your, your heavenly father knows what you need, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all things will be given to you as well. 
Yeshua then goes on to teach his Talmidim, his disciples, a special prayer. Now, this section then begins what we often known as the Lord's Prayer. Or here at Beth Amunah and other places, we call it Tefillat Adon, the Lord's Prayer. It's just Hebrew for the same thing. Now, we've been doing this at Beth Amunah after the Amidah for, I would guess, about 15 to 18 years. And when we first started reciting it, I got very uncomfortable with it. I'm just being vulnerable and honest with you. Because I felt this is so churchy or whatever, you know, like you don't go to most synagogues and they don't recite the Lord's Prayer, right? But yet, as the years have gone on, the more that I've become, begun to understand this prayer in greater depth, not only historically, but even in the message of itself, the more that my own attitude has been able to be changed. Because the way that I responded, it, responded to it originally was largely based out of my own naivete as to the centrality of this prayer. In fact, the idea of this prayer, and I'm going to talk more about this in a second, was so common among the earliest followers of Yeshua, and this is still back when it was a Jewish movement, when they were primarily Jewish, that they would pray this three times a day. So I'll talk more about that in just a second, but let's really quickly go into the Lord's Prayer. So we're now at verse 9, chapter 6, where it begins, You, therefore, are to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the food that we need today. Forgive us what we have done wrong as we too have forgiven those who have wronged us. And do not lead us into hard testing, but keep us safe from the evil one. For yours is the kingship, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The context and content of the Lord's Prayer can be best expounded by looking at the Siddur, the prayer book, and other discussions of prayer within Jewish tradition. So let's unpack this a little more. We begin with this famous line, Avinu right? Our Father in heaven, may your name be sanctified or may your name be kept holy. This was a common beginning to several prayers within the prayer book. This address of God as our Father makes the relationship more familial and personal. Yeshua didn't invent this, right? He's using a pattern of the way that people have connected to God for millennia. This next line of Yeshua's prayer, where he says, Yit kadash shimcha, may your name be holy, echoes the theme of the Kaddish, right, that we say. And actually, traditionally, in a, in a Jewish prayer service, we don't just say the form of the Kaddish prayer for, the, for mourning. There's actually different types of Kaddishes. And where we say, Yit kadash, Yit kadal v'yit kadash rabbah, right? Magnified and sanctified. Sanctified means be made holy, be God's great name. Both, both of these prayers, the, ones that Yesh, the one that Yeshua recites and the Kaddish that was developed by the rabbis, both echo the theme of, holiness, of the holiness of God's name. And they don't mean this literally by saying the holiness of God's name. What they mean is God's entire identity is holy, right? And then we praise something that I wish we had more time to unpack. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom is obviously the kingdom of heaven. 
the work and the interaction of God and the earth. And it's similar to all the passages that talk about Malchut Mashiach, the Messianic age or the Messianic kingdom. And these ideas and these themes permeate even rabbinic literature. And it's something that's very powerful when we pray, may your, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. What's powerful about the biblical mindset and the Jewish mindset is we're not praying for God to beam us out of here. Like, God, just get me through this so I can get out of here. Instead, we're praying, God, may your kingdom come right here, right now, just as it is in heaven. God, sanctify the world in which we live and make it holy. Far too often, popular theology says the only reason why we're here is to get on to the next place. That's a reward. (laughs) But it's not the reason why we're here necessarily. The reason why we're here is to partner with God, to bring God's kingdom into the here and now. This is why it says that we are able to be the hands, the feet, the eyes, the ears of Messiah to work in the world in order to bring about redemption, but redemption happens relationally. It starts with one another. And then we continue, Give us this day our daily bread or the food that we need today. And forgive us what we have done wrong as we too have forgiven those who have wronged us. This is a common theme, especially as we get into the letters of Paul. Like you cannot ask God for forgiveness and yet refuse to forgive others. It doesn't work that way. And notice the plural phrasing of Yeshua's prayer. Everything is forgive us, lead us, right? Give us. This is again, very characteristic of Jewish prayer. All of our prayers we say, Adonai Eloheinu, our God, our this, our that, right? Because it's communal. It's so easy, especially again in Western theology, to narrow everything down to yourself. It's just all about me, myself, and God, right? That's not the way the Bible works. It's not that you as an individual don't matter, but it's that you matter as an individual because you're a part of something bigger. It's because you yourself are here and active as a part of the redemption of the entire cosmos. The entire world, everything about it will be changed when the Messiah returns. And do not lead us into hard testing, but keep us safe from the evil one. According to my friend, Dr. David Stern, the Greek here may also be translated, instead of saying the evil one, you could just say evil more generally, as in a sense of bad things that happen. And that's the way some translations say, right? Deliver us from evil. It seems more accurate from the context to say from the evil one, but both would be accurate. Now, it's interesting when it says, keep us safe from the evil one, that there's a parallel to this verse in the Talmud, which states, whenever Rabbi Chia Bar Abba fell on his face in prayer, he would say, May the merciful one save us from the tempter. So that's the work of the evil one, right? It's the great tempter. And Yeshua concludes his prayer by saying, For yours is the kingship, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now, many scholars have noted the similarity between the Lord's Prayer and the Amidah. 
particularly the weekday Amidah, which is a little different. It begins the same as we recite every day or every Shabbat morning, but the middle content, which we usually do silently, that's different during the week. Furthermore, the Talmud records that there is an abridged version of the Amidah, known as Tefillah Kitsara, and some suggest that Yeshua's prayer may have been intended to be used as an abbreviated form of the Amidah. However, unlike Yeshua's prayer, the abbreviated Amidah is intended for people who were traveling or in danger and for whatever reason did not have time to recite the entire Amidah. So it wasn't meant to be used on a daily basis. Whereas Yeshua's prayer, at least historically speaking, was used daily and used three times a day. So what's the deal? Could there be another reason why Yeshua taught this prayer to his disciples? According to my friend Aaron Eby of First Fruits of Zion, we have evidence from the Didache. The Didache is the earliest um, text dealing with the, you know, kind of the explanation of the followers of Yeshua outside of the New Testament. So in this text known as the Didache, we know that Yeshua's prayer was prayed three times a day, which would seem to correspond to the Amidah, which is also prayed three times a day. When compared when we compare Yeshua's prayer with other specific Jewish prayers, we find amazing parallels, both in form and in content. In a specific sugya, specific section of the Talmud, there is a list of personal petitions that were offered by various sages after they completed the Amidah. Jewish tradition teaches that as a person prays each of these prayers leading up to the Amidah, he or she draws closer and closer to the throne room of God, so to speak. And when you reach the tefillah, when you reach the Amidah, you stand, as it were, in the Holy of Holies. So these sages composed beautiful supplications that they would pray privately along with and especially after the Amidah. And in fact, right after the Amidah is still considered the best place to insert your own personal prayers. So you'll hear many rabbis all the time say, you know, as you're praying the Amidah and when you finish, before you step, you know, do your three steps back out in order to end your prayer, use this time to just pray whatever it is that you want to cry out to God. Believe it or not, spontaneous prayer is not foreign to Judaism. We often think that the only prayers are out of a book, but actually the rabbis encourage that these are just warm up, right? It kind of gives you the outline. When you're not sure what to pray, you start here and then you move on. I've mentioned before when we were talking about and we were introducing the prayer book that, um, as many of you know, I grew up in a home that believed in the, the gifts of the Spirit. And so often when I am praying on my own, like when I get up in the morning and I put on my talit and tefillin and I'm praying with the siddur, the siddur kind of gets me going because I'm tired. I don't really feel like doing it, right? And then until you get into it. And often for me, I will move back and forth between my you know, spiritual prayer language and the words of the Siddur. And the more that you get comfortable with this, the more that you can do that. The challenge of Jewish prayer is it's, you can't just do it the first time you do it, right? It's like riding a bike. Most of us did not just hop on a bike and we're doing wheelies and, you know, <laughs> bunny hops and stuff. Instead, we had training wheels, right, <laughs> that squeak, as you're going down the road and it takes time and then when you get comfortable with it then you can take the training wheels off 
And then you're still wobbling around and crashing occasionally, but you start to get more comfortable, and now you try doing more things. Look, Mom, no hands, you know? Or then you can do a wheelie, or you can do a bunny hop, and you can start adding all that different stuff. Well, the same way goes with Jewish prayer. That you have to get used to it. It has to become a part of you to where you begin to feel comfortable with it. And then you can kind of spiritually pop wheelies and stuff. That you can riff on the page. That you can use the page as a springboard in order to then launch into your own personal supplications. Or wherever it is that God is leading you in your prayer. We might ask... If these prayers that the sages would recite after the Amidah were private, how do we know what they said, <laughs> right? Well, these prayers are actually, many of them were recorded. And they were recorded so that the sages then would then teach them to their disciples. These prayers then acted as a link between the sage and their disciples and between all the other disciples. So it was kind of a thing that if you followed a particular sage, that we all recite common liturgy, which everybody does, but there would be specific things that would link you to your rabbi, right? Specific prayers or customs and practices that would not only unite you to your rabbi and your rabbi to you, but then unite you to all the other disciples. And so what it seems is that when Yeshua taught this prayer, that it was meant to serve in a similar kind of a form. That it was a prayer that is similar to other Jewish prayers, but was unique, not only to Yeshua, but to his followers. It was a way to unite the followers of Yeshua to their Messiah and to one another. And just as the Amidahs prayed three times a day, so this concluding prayer seemed to have been offered each time that we pray three times a day. And this would account for the usage of the Lord's Prayer then attested to in the Didache, in the Didache and other early writings. And that is why Beth Emunah, a number of years ago, began the custom to recite the Lord's Prayer following the Amidah. Or sometimes we'll get a little creative and we'll do other New Testament-inspired pieces, either the Brita introduced the Beatitudes or other pieces of New Testament-inspired liturgy. Because when we recite the Amidah, we're kind of in this powerful space, so to speak. And we're in the presence of God and it is the opportunity to add these special prayers that not only link us to our Messiah, but link us to one another. So just to conclude, this passage here then wraps up with a few other verses. Following the Lord's Prayer, Yeshua then goes on in verse 14 and expands on two other spiritual practices associated with prayer, forgiveness and fasting. In verse 14, we read, For if you forgive others of their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will not forgive yours. Which leads us right back into the words of the prayer that we were supposed to say, right? Forgive us our trespasses as you forgive those against us. Or, yes, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> and then he goes on to say in verse 16, Now when you fast, don't go around looking miserable like the hypocrites. They make sour faces so that people will know that they are fasting. Yes, I tell you, they have their reward already. But you, when you fast, wash your face and groom yourself so that no one will know that you are fasting except your Father who is with you in secret. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
Obviously, on a day like Yom Kippur, we all know that we're fasting, right? <laughs> but still, it's, it's, if you're making it a big deal of look how pious I am, no, you're you know, pious like everybody else is pious, right? <laughs> Although these four things, the giving, uh, righteous giving, tzedakah, prayer, forgiveness, and fasting may seem like separate topics, Yeshua actually intentionally links them all together. They are essential components of a healthy spiritual life. They're not the only components, but they're central ones. Tzedakah really literally means in English righteous giving. It's not just charity. It's other ways in which you do something righteous on behalf of another person. It's being generous and giving to others. Prayer is daily communication with God. Forgiveness, we must forgive just as we have been forgiven. And fasting is talking about spiritual discipline in our lives that we all desperately need. And one of those ways of spiritual discipline is through fasting. Although these four, uh, spiritual health is measured by how much your entire life is lived in relation to God. I also want you to understand just how central the Lord's Prayer is, both historically for the followers of Yeshua, as well as how powerful it can be for you personally. You should find ways to incorporate it into your daily life. You should pray it regularly. Use it as an outline for deeper prayer. For example, as you're praying God, you know, forgive us of our trespasses. Think, you can think of specific ways in which God, this is the way I need your forgiveness. Or God, these are, this is somebody I need your help in forgiving. Thank you for what you've been given. God, thank you for my brand new Lamborghini Countach. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll never drive one of those, and it's okay with me. But, you know, the idea is you can use it in, to pray the words that are there or use it as an outline for kind of expanding on and how you want to pray even deeper about the, the issues that God is, is doing there and within you. We should be incorporating the words of Yeshua, not just this, but all the words of Yeshua into our lives every single day. Finally, in what ways are each one of us having a problem forgiving? With others? With ourselves? I think sometimes it's even harder to forgive ourselves. And finally, in what ways do you need to establish greater spiritual discipline in your life? I know that's something I'm always working on is how to do a better job at doing a better job, right? <laughs> of working with God, of being in scripture daily, of all of these things takes time and it takes effort, but it's worth it. And you get out of it what you put into it. If you never crack your Bible, if you never talk to God, and we all do this, and then what happens? We're the first ones to say, God, you're never there for me. God's still always there. But we need to do our part so that God can do God's part. If I only showed up at my house a few times a year, If every single once in a while I did something nice for my son, how healthy of a relationship do you think I'd have with either my spouse or my son? And you know what? Sometimes it, it's hard to have to balance all the demands that we have in our life. But if we don't set boundaries, I know for me, people are always like, well, you're not available like at nights often. Well, it's because my family needs me, you know? 
I do make time. It's not that I'm never available, but we all have to juggle all of these things. But if you don't set boundaries and if you don't th make things priorities, then it's not going to be a priority. Avinu, our Father. God, I pray that as we go through the words of the Sermon on the Mount, it's so easy to just read these things as providing comfort instead of letting them challenge us. God, I know that as I've been preparing this sermon series over the last few weeks in the Sermon on the Mount of just how much I've been challenged by these words. And I pray that if we get anything out of today, it would be that. That God, the, serious of our, the seriousness of our relationship will only come out of the seriousness in which we take it. God, if we want to have an intimate relationship with you, it requires communication, it requires time, it requires discipline. But God, I pray that, that's, would be, that that would be exactly what you want to do within us this year as a community, as individuals. That 2020 would be the year that we begin to see 2020, that we would have 2020 vision prophetically and spiritually not only into what you're doing within our community, but what you're doing within our own lives and the lives of those around us. So I pray that as we take seriously what you are doing, that you would literally inscribe these words upon our hearts and our minds and our souls. So thank you, God, for what you're doing in us and through us so that we can be your partners in bringing redemption to the world and announcing your coming kingdom. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. So if you'll rise with me as we turn to the words of the Elenu on your